Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Lift Big, Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or, like me, from your garage. Uh, He also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new... Go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code DONKEY to get 15% off. The Phalanx Method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? Dum dum, beetle dum dum, beetle dum dum, beetle dum dum. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked and cover, ducked and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Ducked and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation... All right, welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Joe. Nick isn't here today. Instead, I have a special guest with me and the first actual, well, I guess you say expert in training that uh, we've ever had. His name is Marty Pfeiffer, and he's a PhD student at the University of New Mexico studying nuclear anthropology. Um, So I actually, uh, unlike other episodes... I brought someone on that knows what the hell they're talking about. Um, well, kind of, maybe, sometimes. <laughs> more than me. Um, how are you doing today, Marty? I know you uh, got run ragged doing all sorts of uh, lectures and stuff. Yeah, it's been a, a long week, low on sleep, but, you know, grad school life is what it is. And, of course, the world continues to be, you know, a flaming mess. But uh, stiff upper lip, we must, you know, the show must go on. Right. Um, so... I know for me, I actually had to look into what exactly the hell nuclear anthropology is um, because I've never heard of it. And um, uh, so I'm trying to create it. Yeah. Uh, so what exactly is it that you study? So uh, the, the sort of larger or hopefully it will you know, blossom into a larger uh, field in terms of nuclear anthropology is this overarching thing in which people can um, conduct research under the topic. For me personally, I am especially interested in how we create beliefs and values about nuclear weapons, how we circulate those societally, um, how they are challenged and negotiated. And as my uh, dissertation project has started to evolve, it looks like most of my field work or a lot of my field work is going to be conducted looking at how at official sites of nuclear heritage, people are engaging with various discourses, narratives, the artifacts, and each other to create these sort of meanings. So um, another way of putting that would be to say that I'm really interested in uh, nuclear semiotics and how we use signs to make meaning and then act on that in the world. And your your studies focus mostly um, 
as opposed to what we talk about as a nuclear weapons rather than nuclear power. Oh, yeah. Correct. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and you, you had kind of referenced this a little bit earlier, right? That when first discovered and, um, as part of my research, I've gone through advertisements from the 1950s and 1960s published in physics today and scientific American. And, uh, I've read some of the, um, you know, the period literature and so on. And, uh, at the time, the distinction wasn't really made as much as we do currently between power and weapons, right? It was this overarching nuclear energy right. sort of thing. And you, you see that kind of now. Um, and uh, well, I guess Iran isn't the greatest example, but, you know, um, yeah, nuclear power can exist without there being nuclear weapons in some countries, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and so this is one of those areas where it can get kind of controversial depending on whom you ask and um, with whom you're having a conversation, right? Right. So let me let me say from the, the beginning, I myself am not opposed to nuclear power generation um, as long as it's conducted uh, in a you know particular way with proper safeguards, safety, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that said, um, you know, there are and always have been um, articulations between nuclear power and the uh, use of atomic energy for military purposes. Reactors you know, tend to produce things like plutonium. Reprocessing is dual use. Um, uranium enrichment is really dual use. And so in some ways, I think that Iran, as uh, which you just mentioned, is actually a really good way to talk about that. How do you, if someone is developing centrifuge technology, how do you differentiate between them when they say, okay, we're only going to use this technology for generating nuclear fuel versus we might add some more centrifuges, change the tubing around a little bit, and we're going to ramp the uh, enrichment up to bomb grade. And is, is there a, a large difference between the two? I mean, because as a uh, completely uneducated layperson, I just figure like plutonium uranium like that's a nuclear bomb so again this is this is where it can can get a little controversial for uranium um highly enriched uranium is defined by the iea as 20 percent. the manhattan project's uh, little boy weapon used uranium enriched in u-235 up to about an average of 80 percent generally u.s nuclear weapons my understanding has you have used uranium enriched in u-235 um to 90%, 93%. So uh, most nuclear power plant fuel, depending on the type of reactor, you enrich to you know 3%, 2% to 4%, and it's completely, the fuel itself is completely unusable for uh, an actual explosive, nuclear explosive device. There are some reactors that use natural uranium. Those, uh, the natural uranium itself is not usable for a bomb, but generally natural uranium reactors are considered a bit more of a risk because they can be used to breed plutonium. You can design them in such a way that you can remove the fuel rods after a fairly low period of time in the reactor, so you get really good plutonium out of them. Um, you know, the, the first U.S. plutonium production reactors were uh, graphite piles with natural uranium in them and no power generation, and then we'd take the rods out, chop them up, dissolve them in nitric acid, separate the plutonium, and then you use the plutonium for a bomb. Uh, 
Interesting. I read something like uh, the Nazis had some. I, I tried to look into this, but like as someone who's completely uneducated in nuclear weapons, I didn't really know what I was looking at. Um, I read somewhere that like the Nazis had their own pile system that they're trying to generate nuclear power from uh, for the purpose of creating a, a bomb or something like that. Um, my, so this is also really interesting. Uh, my understanding of the um, Nazi program is that it never got very far in part. And that they didn't actually achieve a self-sustaining critical mass like we did at uh, the University of Chicago in 1942, CP1. Um, Partly because I think it was like impurities in their graphite or something like that. But the United States was worried enough about it that we actually began doing aerial um, surveillance as once we were on the continent looking for some of the uh, gases produced from um, a nuclear weapons program, you know, just to see where they were. And uh, after, you know, we came in, assessing the state of their nuclear weapons program was one of those things that we did. I mean, we did this with Japan too, but uh, the Nazis were, Nazi Germany was never anywhere close. But we were worried. Yeah, we were worried because they had access to, um, right, the Czechoslovakian uranium mine, science, you know, Germany was one of the kind of at the forefront in terms of science. I mean, the discoverers of fission were Lise Meitner, um, Fritz and Hans. Uh, so, you know, it was something we were worried about. But the development of uh, atomic bombs during World War II required a degree of resources and industrialization that the Nazi Germany probably couldn't have mustered. Uh, and Hitler was more interested in, like, you know, short-term payoffs and such than this sort of kind of shot in the dark, maybe work, maybe won't work. The uh, the American nuclear weapon program was just absolutely massive, wasn't it? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, I've never been to um, Los Alamos for obvious reasons. I have no reason to be there. Um, but I have heard that it is absolutely massive. Well, uh, I think it was, was it Fermi? It was one of the Manhattan Project folk after it was over said, um, or had previously said, you know, the only way you can do this before the end of war, the war ends is if you turn the whole country into a giant factory. And we kind of did. Uh, I think it ended up being something like $2 billion then, so maybe about $30 billion now. Um, as know, far as with, defense spending goes, it's kind of a fucking budget for these days. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, the F-35 or, you know, a single, uh, single B-6112 is going to be like $24 million fucking dollars yeah. uh, type of deal. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, they also did things a bit differently, right? So at Hanford, they uh, the reprocessing waste after they had dissolved the rods and so on, like the low to medium level waste, you know, you just go dig a trench and uh, pour it in. And like, you <laughs> couldn't do that now. They just dumped a whole bunch of shit into a trench. Yep. Uh, they would have like little irrigators that would kind of dribble it out. Uh, there are pictures you can find of like these cardboard boxes from the late fifties, you know, marked with the radiation trefoil. And it's like, they're just shoveling them into a trench somewhere. And then, I mean, this kind of goes without saying, uh, but you know, hindsight's 2020. Uh, I can assume this is a tad unsafe. Uh, Hanford is um, very carefully, not officially called a national sacrifice zone. But Hanford's kind of a national sacrifice zone. Um, you know, there's the tank farm there, which are these steel tanks that uh, held highly radioactive waste. There are things buried there. It's a massive project that DOE is still trying to clean up. The current 
estimated completion date is like 2060. But quite frankly, I don't think it's doable at any cost that we're willing to pay. And this has become um, a point of significant controversy in the post-Cold War era with the openness initiative and the relaxation of secrecy, which has always been excessive, I would argue, around nuclear weapons and the admission by the U.S. government that, like, we did some really messy fucking shit that's going to be really expensive to clean up. So they kicked the can uh, down the hallway for the next generation oh yeah. and the next generation. Uh, yeah. And Hanford, that is then that Washington State. Yep. I thought so. Okay. So funny story. I'm in Washington State. And oh, um, nice. yeah, uh, you should but, go on the tour. Yeah, I uh, I have enough radiation in my body from staying I mean, from staying around uh, main battle tanks for quite a while. Um, yeah, I still think yeah, I'd probably do armor. it. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's depleted uranium, and they insist it doesn't do anything bad to you. Uh, and they would, and survey says that's mostly wrong um, from our bombs and everything like that. But uh, uh, it's it's kind of strange that this is effectively like a super fun site, and. Um, uh-huh. Uh, I, I actually worked with the I don't work for them, but I worked with the Benton County Sheriff's Office where Hanford is and okay. their sheriff's patch has the nuclear symbol on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a- yeah that doesn't surprise me at all. For a while, uh, I think it was Richland, their high school, and it may still be. I haven't looked in a while, but uh, their mascot was like the Richland Bombers. Um, they had a mushroom cloud. Uh, uh Yeah. That's one of the things I actually find really fascinating are how those um, indices, those indexes, those icons of nuclearity, especially as like the symbol of modernity and power circulate. Yeah. Um, And it seems kind of strange. I mean, I know these things probably came to be around like the golden age of nuclear energy or whatever, but it seems strange that they would still hold on to them in the year 2018 where we know that these things cause massive death and destruction. Um, So for this, this is one of the things that I've, I've really gotten fascinated by are uh, the multiple lines of influence and thought that are involved in any particular instantiation of that sort of thing, right? So New Mexico, which has economically at least um, been, you know, benefited in many ways from huge amounts of DOE money. Right, And yet the population here, at least as I have observed, exhibits a real shyness about acknowledging and certainly about ex- celebrating that outside of certain areas. So like in San- Santa Fe in particular, Santa Fe um, had it was uh, I think it was from a movie or a show or something, but it, it was um, a foam replica of the Trinity site monument on display publicly and it was a it was a thing like the newspapers were you know people were upset and like oh we shouldn't have this and and so on or um in albuquerque when the national museum of nuclear science and history was located in old town after it had to leave kirtland air force base after 9 11 which you know 9 11 day right um there was a redstone missile on display and people went fucking ape shit uh because you know this this presence of the museum and especially the missile was seen as tainting albuquerque's you know heritage and its architecture and it's like well why do you think albuquerque was one of the fastest growing urban areas back in the 50s right that is their heritage yeah that's like Um, but detroit not being like the motor city yeah (laughs) um but there's a real shyness about it and Certainly the presence of the nuclear weapons laboratories in the two of them, Sandia and um, Los Alamos, 
in New Mexico has not been without controversy and without environmental impacts. And uh, the relationship has often or at times been described as colonial because, you know, the people who tend to run Los Alamos tend to be from out of town. Uh, the money doesn't necessarily circulate evenly, etc. Um, but there, there's just a, a really surprising shyness or um, discomfort with that nuclear heritage. That's a, I mean, I, I guess I can see um, both sides of it. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. be super proud that I came from the place that came up with nuclear bombs. But um, at the same time, you can be happy that you are part of like one of modern man's greatest scientific achievements. Great doesn't always mean good. Yeah, you know, and so this is uh, right for, from the perspective of the people who work in the labs. And I try very hard not to in my work. And, you know, I have friends who have worked on nuclear weapons, worked in the labs, etc. Um, you know, for the people who work on nuclear weapons, right, their perspective is such that they are doing an important job, that it contributes to, you know, United States security, etc., etc. All of those are things that, you know, I disagree very strongly with. Right. Um, however... With the exception of like maybe one or two people, you know, nobody I've met who works at the labs has ever given me that like, holy fucking shit, this person's just an evil asshole. Vibe. Right. And they normally uh, Edward, they normally don't. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that so Hugh Gusterson did um, in the 90s, his dissertation research at Lawrence Livermore, and he examined the lab there as though it were a uh, exotic group that had lost a critical ritual um, performance, in this case, explosive nuclear testing. And they were not, not everybody was happy about that. But I think that one of the things that, like, some of the folk in the lab are really pissed, you know. Uh, but one of the things to come out of that, I would argue, is, uh, you know, the folk who work on nuclear weapons, the folk who design them, um, they're people, and they're doing a job. And most, you know, the vast majority of the time, and certainly the folk I've talked to, uh, they're doing that job, you know, because they believe that it's important, that it's necessary, and that it's, you know, if you're going to have them, that you need to have them, you know, as safe and the best ones possible and such. Uh, again, these are all things I don't necessarily buy into, but um, I can certainly accept that rationale or logic. Now, if we're going to talk about, like, Edward Teller and his quest for, you know, ever bigger bombs and such, like, Teller was an asshole. In my opinion, I actually but. don't know anything about him. Um, I know um, he was he was was he part of I was kind of going off the rails here, but was he part of the the Castle Bravo incident? Is it was that his doing or uh, uh, am I thinking of somebody else? I mean, he was involved with right the the um, big thing that led to staged thermonuclear weapons, which allow uh, basically an infinite yield if you ever really wanted it. Uh, was because <laughs> yeah, an infinitely infinitely powerful nuclear bomb is absolutely for the betterment of society. Yeah. Oh, and Teller. <laughs> I mean, t there was Project uh, Sundial, which was the desire to build gigaton sized weapons. But um, <laughs> it's a lot of right. science fiction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the two were not necessarily totally separable. In fact, science fiction offered one of the most cogent and prescient analyses of a world with nuclear weapons before they were even invented. And certainly after they were invented. Right. Um, for a while. I don't, I don't believe that uh, castle Bravo was teller though. That was a, uh, I'm not sure who did it, but there was a miscalculation as to how much tritium would be produced from unenriched lithium deuteride having neutrons hit it. Uh, 
uh, and the amount turned out to be significant, and they got you know two to three times the yield they expected. And that was right. Well, not necessarily right next to, but within the hazard zone or the blast area of a civilization, correct? Yeah. So American nuclear testing in the Pacific has been an incredibly colonial and fucked up exercise. Right. Starting. Yeah. Starting with, you know, 1946 crossroads test when we coerce the Bikini Islanders to move islands. And then with. uh, Right. (laughs) We just talked Um, them into it. Uh, so the U.S. says, you know, they saw the value of this and they agreed. But if you look at the records and you watch the video, like they had no fucking clue what they were being asked to do. Right. And they certainly didn't agree. Like, yeah, we're going to leave and you can set off 66 nuclear weapons of over 100 megatons total and leave large swaths of our islands uninhabitable for forever, basically. And the, the Soviets did almost the same thing, didn't they? Except they just exploded them over Kazakhstan. Yeah, so uh, most, um, as far as I'm aware, pretty much everybody, I'm not as familiar with India and Pakistan's program or North Korea as well, we're at it. Uh, but yeah, nuclear um, colonialism, like the French tested in the Pacific on their colonized peoples and also in Algeria, the U.S. did it. Um, and of course, large chunks, if not most, of the U.S. nuclear weapons con- complex was sited on land that had been taken from native peoples. Uh, the Soviets did it in Semichalatinsk in Kazakhstan and also uh, Nevaya Law, which had um, a population of people that they displaced. The U.K. did it in Australia and also the Pacific. I mean, yeah, we basically – every nuclear power has um, you know, generally stuck the nasty shit. Uh, in the homes of marginalized peoples, which have tended to be colonized or racial or ethnic uh, minorities. Who would have thought that um, imperialism meeting uh, what is effectively a doomsday weapon would have possibly had any bad end effects? Um, Normally, it's so pure and good. Exactly. Right. Like, oh, this will be fine. I'm sure that they'll take great care of the Bikini Islanders. Right. Right. Um, Why wouldn't they? Right. And to go back to your point, with um, Castle Bravo, you know, we did not like super leap into action super quick to uh, help them out after the Bravo thing. I mean, I think it was a day or two before uh, we started evacuating and then they were enrolled into a medical surveillance program, Project 4.1. So um, a day you know, or two? Um, and how long? I mean, I, I know like getting hit by the blast wave or that's immediate, you're going to die. But a day or two seems pretty late to help anybody that's severely affected by the nuclear bombs. What yeah, it? in this case, the uh, the fallout. So you can look at the pictures. I mean, there were absolutely Bikini Islanders who had what are uh, called beta burns, um, depigmentation of areas of the skin related to exposure to beta uh, yeah, it was not great. Um, and we didn't see, and certainly the Bikini Islanders have also felt as though they've been used as guinea pigs. Uh, I personally do not believe that like project 4.1 was an intentional effort to dust them with fallout and then to study it. But I can also understand how that thought might come into your head and be a very compelling one. Yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, would that be over? I mean, because we had tested on our people before, not with nuclear weapons, but with um, the uh, wasn't it in San Francisco or something? They they unleashed a whole bunch of particles to track what would happen uh, during a biological weapon or a chemical weapon attack in in a metropolitan area. And that that affected people badly. So I I could see how, um, you know, 
effectively exploding the damn ocean in front of you, um, you could see that the government did that on purpose. Yeah, so I'm not as familiar with the uh, the bioweapon stuff that, that you're mentioning, but um, there's uh, under Clinton, it was the Presidential Commission on the Human Radiation Experiments, I want to say the title is. A friend of mine back in Louisiana was actually one of the press people on it, and I have a, he was gracious enough to sign my copy. But, you know, you flip through it, and it's like, all right, the United States injected people with plutonium during the Manhattan Project. Jesus. Yeah, without their consent and without telling them to, because they were trying to work out what acceptable exposure levels and such were. Uh, There were total body irradiation experiments in Cincinnati, Connecticut, uh, that like are really problematic because they offered no benefit to the patients. Um, There was what was called the Green Run with Hanford, where... Normally, they would let the fuel rods sit for a while to let the, the most radioactive isotopes die off, um, decay away, before reprocessing the fuel, because that way there's less stuff that you put into the atmosphere. And the hot stuff is you know, what you want to let die away, because that's going to be the most impactful to human health, probably. So for the Green Run, partly related to a desire to um, you know, tie it to uh, the U.S.'s developing atomic energy detection system, where we were trying to see how clouds of radioactive material would move through the atmosphere so that we could monitor Soviet testing and Soviet airspace and such. Uh, You know, they just ran a fresh load of fuel rods through and released a shit ton of radiation, and um, especially iodine-131, which has a really short half-life, but, you know, it gets uptaken into the thyroid, and the thyroid um, doesn't do so great with that. That's one of the the huge things that shows with... um nuclear exposure is thyroid cancer, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's usually, that's also one of the, um, you know, this is a stochastic probabilistic thing. It's very difficult, if not impossible to ever point to a particular cancer and say, this was caused by radiation exposure, especially when you're dealing with, you know, the potential for low doses or chronic exposure to low doses or so on. But thyroid cancer is one of the ones that it's easier to say, like, okay, you've got a cluster, you know, we can tie this to this particular isotope, um, and here's how it moves through the ecosystem. And I noticed um, uh, human history, especially with nuclear weapons, is it's kind of like giving a handgun to a toddler in that they do awful things and they don't know what's going to happen next, and all of their ideas are bad. Um, well, all right. So let me rephrase that. Not all of them, but when they weaponized them, they got crazy. Yeah. Um, and one, uh, we're going to go over a couple of, I, I think favorites is a strong word because we're talking about doomsday uh, weapons. Yeah. But they're so nuts that you would expect there to be like an acne sticker slipped, like slapped on the side. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. um, like one of my favorites, maybe it's because I was a tank crewman while I was in the army, but uh, was the Davy Crockett. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, did, you want me to? Yeah. That one? Yeah. Um, so the Davy Crockett was a W54 mod two, I want to say. Don't hold me to mod two, but it was an um, extremely low yield weapon. The uh, the lowest yield weapon that the U.S. deployed, it was a recoilless rifle for either a Jeep or a three-person crew with two security. Um, on the Jeeps, you could carry a six-pack of nuclear shells, <laughs> um, right? Which is really fun and optimistic. <laughs> Uh, 
So the yield, it was tested twice in the Littlefeller shots at 18 and 22 tons. Um, and the DOD has, but not DOE, has declassified that the nominal yield was 20 tons. If you work out the curves of, uh, you know, radiation exposure um, and blast, like the radiation goes, it's kind of overlap. Um, and if you look at the ranges of the weapon, which were, you know, a couple miles, a mile and a half, a couple miles, depending on which version it was, there were a lot of delivery scenarios where the people firing them would be in the like dangerous to lethal radiation exposure range. Um, <laughs> and that's without even going to like, hey, we're going to hand these really low level echelon infantry people nukes. It'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. And no I've, I've worked with and I'm not insulting infantry, I'm insulting all soldiers because I was one um, and I host a podcast with one. Um, you can't go to the range. Like to fire your rifle without safety briefings about like don't uh, yeah. don't shoot yourself or your buddy on accident and you're gonna give them nuclear weapons. Yeah, and uh, you know the United States, um, especially under Eisenhower, we made a policy decision that rather than and it was related to economics and the desire to rebuild Europe and not to spend ourselves into oblivion on defense, we made a policy decision to rely on um, nuclear weapons for military force rather than large conventional troops. So uh, it wasn't mutually assured destruction as what as much as like plan a is also nukes. Well, you know, mutually assured destruction has never been a policy or the official policy per se, more of a fact of life. Um, oh. Yeah. You know, the U S has always sought damage limitation capabilities. Uh, and if you look at declassified briefing, presidential briefings on, um, Nuclear war plans, and especially in the 50s and 60s, like the first target category uh, that I've always seen is, you know, the ability of the adversary to deliver nuclear weapons against the U.S., its allies, and its forces. Uh, because, you know, if you're going to, I mean, the logic is clear. If you're going to absolutely positively have a nuclear war, you need to strike first. You need to attack their weapons, and you need to try and decapitate. Uh, you're still going to die. Sure, um, especially but, once the Russians invented the dead hand system or whatever yeah. the official name for that was. Perimeter. Uh, I don't know what it is in Russian, but but yeah. Um, but that's your only choice is damage limitation if that's what you're going to go for. Not everybody has gone for that, right? The Chinese have certainly um, not developed the sorts of forces or the number of forces where they could have any sort of hope whatsoever of damage limitation against like the United States or against the Soviets and then uh, the Russians and for damage um, limitations. Do you mean um, like some kind of countermeasure or, uh, or a preemptive strike to try to limit the amount of weapons they get hit by the latter? Uh, right. So this is where the, some of the instability of nuclear weapons comes in, especially if you have like a large number of weapons that are ready to launch, you know, like land-based ICBMs. Um, or bomber, you know, presumably bombers back in the day. But uh, if you can destroy the weapons and the command and control before they're used, that's kind of your only choice because, of, you know, the bomber will always get through. Uh, and especially once thermonuclear weapons came onto the scene, a single weapon can mean an entire city. Right. And then and when the, the nuclear triad's invented, now you have to deal with submarines and aircraft and ICBMs and. It, yeah, it just there's no effective countermeasure to that. I mean, there there was never you know bombers are like the easiest to take out, right? Uh, although the United States limited um, that vulnerability through things like minimal interval interval takeoff, uh, 
from, I think it was uh, 62 to 68, we had a certain number of bombers in the air 24-7 loaded up with nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. We stopped doing that after um, two we, very high-profile... Yep. We had numerous... Oh, they're called broken arrows or something like that when they're yep. when, when we lose one, right? Uh, why don't, I know uh, quite a few of them were, were seriously close calls. A couple, yeah. So I think it's 34, 32, 34... Um, between uh, up to 1980. Uh, so a broken arrow is a particular accident category that involves things like there was a fire, the high explosives in the weapon detonated. Um, you lost one like it. In one case, uh, you know, an airplane rolled off of an aircraft carrier and like, whoops, you know, <laughs> um, it sucked. You know, the pilot was in it. It was like, ooh, like that you know, shitty way to, to go. Um in 1966, uh, there was a B-52 that collided with a refueling tanker over Spain. Um, it was carrying four, uh, I think, 1.4 megaton B-28 nuclear bombs. Uh, all of them fell. You know, the bomber falls. The bombs are going to fall, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them, the parachutes didn't open. They hit the ground. The high explosives detonated, scattering plutonium. The Spanish were understandably very fucking pissed. Uh, <laughs> The other two weapons, the parachutes opened. One of them hit the ground. It's uh, the other one went into the water. We had to spend like three months looking for it. Those casings are actually now on display at the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History, uh, just down the street from me, um, here in Albuquerque. Hey, look at this uh, time we didn't accidentally kill the Spaniards. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and um, you know the gold. So that one happened, and then in 1968 there was another B-52 went down over Thule, Greenland. All four Mark 28s were destroyed. At that point, the United States decided, like, okay, that's enough. Um, And we stopped doing constant airborne alerts. And the number of accidents dropped. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And we lost, lost, like, straight up could not find a few nukes, did we not? uh, Several. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. There's one off the coast of Georgia. Uh, There's one in the ocean somewhere. there's parts of a secondary in North Carolina, which the Goldsboro accident in 1961 is like shit yourself terrifying. Um, there were four switches and safeties that had to activate for the weapon to fire. Three of them did. Oh, my uh, because God. The con- yeah. So the weapon, when it hit the ground, it's one of them. There were two. It sent a firing signal. It tried to detonate. Uh, and the only reason it didn't is because the pilot safe arm switch didn't fail that time but they had failed in the past pilots <laughs> have also been known to like fiddle with them um and at that point and with the other oopsies in the 1960s sandia in particular got really into it that's the nuclear weapons laboratory just down the street got really interested in like hey we need to do something about this because these devices aren't operating the ways that we expected in accident conditions um, so what they eventually came up with after not insignificant resistance from, uh, the military in part, because they were worried about reliability and so on was, uh, it's called ENS, enhanced nuclear detonation safety. Um, so you use insensitive high explosives, you wrap the warhead in a fiberglass shell, you isolate it from electricity. There's a strong link and a weak link, one for intent where you have to enter into a code, another for trajectory where the weapon has to go through its delivery sequence before it can detonate. Um, And the quantitative criteria are that 
less than one in a million chance of a nuclear yield in an accident, less than one in a billion chance of a nuclear yield during the uh, normal life cycle. But that didn't come until the 70s. And then the 70s, there's already been ICBMs, correct? Or is that yeah. later? ICBMs started up in the late 50s, early 60s uh, with the Atlas and then the Titan ones. And then the uh, first solid fueled ICBMs were the Minuteman ones, which came on alert, I believe, in 1962 was the first one. So by the time that all these almost fail, like almost perfect fail safes come on for the for the strategic bombers, we're not using them anymore. Uh, we were still we still had bombers on strip alert, um, but a lot of the weapons, you know, it takes a while to work this stuff through. I think that the, the lifespan um, was generally anticipated to be about 20 years for a, a design. And so over time, you would replace weapons with fewer, safer fe- safety features with weapons with more safety features. In the early 1980s, Reagan did what was called the... Uh, Stockpile Improvement Plan, which sought to um, do some stuff with some of the more worrisome weapons. So like the B-53, which is a nine megaton, you know, the nickname for it was the crowd pleaser, like nine megatons is shit yourself horrifying. Uh, (laughs) As far as I can tell, the crowd pleaser. Yeah. It's like the most that that's like calling the Tsar Bama like a little girl. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the people, they, they deal with this stuff in different ways. And the, the sense of humor was not always um, what I would have been okay with at the time. I, uh, I guess when you're working with weapons that will end humanity, you have to like, I have gallows humor. Anybody who's listened to oh, the yeah. podcast knows I have a really dark sense of humor. Um, yeah. But Jesus, <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, a, that's a new level. Little, that goes a little bit farther, far even for me. Um, and what's interesting is uh, I can't necessarily speak to, well, okay, so the B-53, um, when it was designed, as far as I can tell, the arming process for it was basically, you know, I'm sure there was something you had to do in the plane too, but like it wasn't codes or anything. It was just you push in a little disc and you rotate it from safe, which has a green, to arm, which is red. And that nice. was kind of it. Uh, Real so nice. The 80s, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is nine megatons. So in the 80s, they field retrofitted it with um, an intense strong link, which required a code. But like, you know, it never had a permissive action link. Um, and that weapon was in the stockpile for a long time, um, which is a bit worrisome. The Titan II, uh, you know, there's congressional testimony a little bit later on in the Titan II's lifespan. So that was the uh, liquid fueled ICBM in 1980. A guy dropped like an eight or 12 pound socket and it punched a hole in the side of it. And a couple hours later, the missile exploded, throwing the warhead several hundred feet. Um, yeah. <laughs> Some mechanic you know, almost nuked somebody on accident. Yeah. You know, uh, Command and Control is Schlosser's book about it. It's actually a really good book, the documentary, a little bit less so. But um, in congressional testimony, uh, Right. One of the SAC people tells Congress, like, hey, look, these Titan twos are assigned to um, specially created designated ground zeros of like soft targets, which are probably things like airfields, cities, cities near airfields, etc. But if you go to the Titan two missile museum, right, you're told that, no, no, this was designed for deeply buried, hardened targets. It's like maybe the bomb version, but the Titan two ICBM, especially toward the end of its lifespan, was aimed at people 
Yeah, I mean, the I think the concept, and we're getting a little off target to- topic, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the concept that like, oh, we're going to use nuclear weapons to destroy uh, equipment and material. Oh, it, total bullshit. Yeah, it's your the equipment and material it's aimed for is people. That's why we use them the first time on cities full of hundreds yep. of thousands of people. Um, anything cities. else is like, you know, they kind of say the same thing nowadays, um, which is equally ridiculous. Um, you know, the military uses a 50 caliber machine gun. Yeah. Um, it they have it labeled as anti-material. You shoot it at people. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this uh, this document. If you ever feel like having one of those days of like, holy fuck, uh, it's from 1977. It's called PSYOP Targeting Philosophy. PSYOP was the strategic single integrated operations plan. It was the U.S. nuclear war plan. Um, even Nixon thought it would kill too many people. Holy uh, shit. When Nixon's the good guy, your yeah. plan is awful. Yeah. Uh, and the first version of it was like in um, SAP 63, 62 uh, came in and it was nuke China, nuke Russia, nuke all of Eastern Europe. Um, you know, what, whoever started it, no matter what, like this is what we're doing. But uh, the, this 1977 document um, is the United States is starting to worry about or exploring possibilities of the Soviets limiting damage through civil defense. So it's a very simple question. What percentage of the Soviet population do we um, project that we would kill with our current war plan? How many more would we kill if we targeted population directly? Do you want to take a guess at the percentages? Um, the percentage of total population? I'm, yeah, get, I'm so, going to go with, I mean, the Soviet Union's huge, and I imagine they're going to target metropolitan areas. Uh, yeah. But I'm still going to say a solid 30%. For uh, indirectly targeted or directly targeted? Indirectly. Um, okay, and how many more do you think it was percentage-wise for direct targeting? I'm going to go with a full outright genocide on that one. Um, so somewhere north of fifty, thirty-three and forty-four. Wow. So, like, right, the difference between you know now, granted, that works out to tens of millions of people, right? But and and that was prompt death. That wasn't like six months later on. That was you know the first couple weeks type of deal. Uh, and it didn't take into account um, a whole lot of stuff which would come into play. So actual casualties would have been. A lot more, but it points to like even though the United States was not targeting population per se and still doesn't target population per se, we still are going to kill you know thirty three whatever percent of people, and that you know we kill enough people that if you directly target them, you don't get a whole lot more out of it no i mean that that's we we probably should have learned that, and we I think we did know that after World oh, yeah. War, after World War Two when they're like, oh, we're targeting many or arms and equipment manufacturers with firebombs and stuff like that. Yeah, like oh, I'm whoopsie, yeah, a whoopsie, yeah. we create a firestorm that killed a million people. Like, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the thing that kind of chats my ass is this: like, so in discussions about disarmament and reducing numbers, one of the arguments that I've heard against that is like, well, then you'll have to target cities, uh, and I had. I'm not sure what exactly his job title was, but it was at a a particular conference. And this one guy from Los Alamos was telling me, like, you know, the United States doesn't target cities and people. We target uh, military and we target industry. And it's like, where the the fuck fuck do you think that industry? Yeah, it's not on fucking Mars, dude. Yeah, like if somebody Um, was going to nuke Boeing, congratulations, you nuked Seattle. Exactly. (laughs) There's no difference between the two. Yeah. Uh, You know, so... It's like we already do it. Um, okay. You know, so those sort of like 
those gymnastics kind of get to me sometimes. I think they uh, have to. Th- those those are the mental gymnastics. Like like we said earlier, these people that make these weapons are not evil. They're they're not evil people. But it's because they do the mental gymnastics. They're like, we are not creating doomsday weapons that will be pointed at people. Um, I've talked with some people who uh, who would be like, yeah, we do, and they're totally aware of that and of those targeting issues. And their argument is this prevents war. This is deterrence. That's how it works. It's not pretty. Um, but, you know, it's also not necessarily that different from like saturation bombing type of thing. Right. Uh, so, so I think you can go either way on that. But I also think that you're right, that for a lot of people, there's a sanitization. And Carol Cohn um, in her wonderful, very funny article called Sex and Death in the Rational World of Defense Intellectuals. Talks okay. about that. Okay, now I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really good. There's like a sub a subheading of like men in ties discussing missile size type of thing. Oh um, god. Yeah, she talks about patting the bomb. It's actually been my inspiration for licking the bomb or licking the bombs. Um, you know, I'm like probably the only person on earth who knows what 15 to 20 different reentry vehicles and weapons casings taste like. But uh <laughs> Yeah, what Cone was arguing is that um you know, it's that techno-strategic abstraction in the discourse that in part allows us to plan these things and to ignore the nastiness of it. That when you tar- start talking about, you know, first strikes and counterforce versus countervalue and so on, decapitation, it lets you kind of like pretend, you know, okay, I'm targeting the military headquarters and it just happens to be in the middle of a city. But the Soviets will totally realize that I didn't mean, you know, target right. the city and right. they'll respond appropriately. And, you know, even though I think uh, that's that's definitely not new, Uh, if you if you look back at some of their weapons, like they were so insanely uh, like impractical and not safe that um, I I think they were always kind of like, well, they're going to have them anyway. And um, yeah, yeah, I can kind of see where some of those those scientists are coming from where they're like, well, you know, it's deterrence because it it, it is because nobody wants to be the first person to be like, okay, I'm done with nukes because because then everybody else is like, well, okay, we're keeping ours. Um, So I guess I can kind of get that. Uh, I don't agree with it, but I I get it. It gets complicated, right? Especially. Um, you know, for me, because I am a, at heart, I'm an abolitionist and, a, you know, we need to we need to get rid of them because I see the maintenance of large nuclear arsenals as and their infinite indefinite retention as virtually a guarantee that they'll eventually be used and that they'll be used in such a way that, you know, our society, the world will end as we know it. Yeah, um, I, I can absolutely agree with that um, yeah. because, it, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I think the United States is an issue here. Uh, with its military uh, and oh, yeah. uh, and a lot of other nations who have large militaries like, well, we spend all this money on it. We might as well use it. And, you know, even though I'm a, a combat veteran and I run a military history podcast um, and I'm super interested in military history, it's why I'm in school for it. Um, I yeah. am like at heart an anti-war pacifist. Um, yeah. But I think um, and you make very good points about this. Looking back um, at at history shows that. If you give these people these things, they're going to find the worst ways possible to use them, uh, and and they will use them. Like um, one of my favorite examples is the British chicken landmine. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, okay. I I don't know much about that one other than it was it was powered by chickens. Um, yeah. Uh, so the I don't think they ever deployed it, but they definitely went through the development process. And when the uh, UK Ministry of Defense like copped up to it. 
they released it on April 1st and they literally had to say, we are not kidding. This is not a joke. <laughs> we did this. And, um, the problem was they wanted to bury nuclear landmines, uh, you know, um, yeah, and the way fold of, a gap, correct? Like there's a way to keep back like the Soviet hordes of tanks and all that shit. Yeah. It was a way to, you know, yeah. Earth moving basically. Uh, and once in place, it would have had um, anti-tamper measures. Like if it's, it would have been pressurized. And if it sensed a pressure change, it would go off. You know, if you tilted it, it would, go, you know. So like if you buried it, <laughs> and that, you know, right? I really wonder, like, well, what if you wanted to disarm it? You know, <laughs> don't uh, look but, at it wrong; it will go off. Exactly. <laughs> Do not taunt Happy Fun Ball. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, the problem was if you bury shit in Germany and the winter, like it's cold and your arming, firing and fusing system may freeze and they needed it not to for three days. And the solution apparently arrived. That was chickens, live chickens in the bomb to keep it warm. Uh, and I would like to be in on that meeting. Like, <laughs> oh, so, and with the British accents too. I yeah. Mean, Lord like, forgive me, but everybody sitting around in an office discussing nuclear weapons policy and the, and this cutting edge new landmine that they came up and it with was. and you know the they're like oh well, we have a problem it's gonna freeze and like there was like the minister of agriculture or, or farming wizards like why not chickens we two birds with one stone we, you know <laughs> a strategic chicken reserve yeah and we keep it from freezing uh and there's a joke i don't know what the source of it is but that you know the uk after the cold war was or at the time or whatever was talking to like their soviet counterpart and the soviet counterpart without missing a beat said why not use piglets <laughs> suggesting that they had done kind of the same thing, but, um, you know, in less funny, uh, aspects are like project Pluto, uh, which has gotten some attention recently because this, the, I almost called them the Soviet union. Uh, the Russians, um, you know, have claimed to be developing a, uh, nuclear powered cruise missile. Right. Uh, the U S back in the day. And, um, actually I found ads from Bendix in the 19. 19- 50s early 1960s where they're advertising their work on like this nuclear reactor which was for a really classified project but their work on the reactor wasn't um the tory 2c reactor but you know pluto was the supersonic low altitude um missile and it was basically this like 500 megawatt reactor ramjet with multiple weapons on it and uh you know you'd have flown it along merrily and it would have dumped its bombs and then you could use it as a radiological weapon Mm -hmm. flying it around above enemy territory and it's just like are you people fuck what what that's around the same time that they uh d- that ford designed and almost built the ford nucleon wasn't it uh yeah right uh, around yeah it saw so, life and fallout so you know it survived yeah i like to imagine that meetings back in the day were like that's a great idea bob but what if we put a nuclear weapon in it like, yeah Good but, thinking, John. Why don't we invent, invent some kind of ramjet or a faster jet engine? Now, nah, fuck it, nukes. Let's just can, yep. can, can we put more doomsday weapons on this? It's yep. like every board meeting and every like large corporation and and every defense contractor meeting involved like Doctor Doom and shit. Like, yep. who keeps and paying was, this guy? And it was partly a way of, of you know nukes were an index of modernity. They were hot. They were considered um, or they were articulated into these discourses of, you know, being the ultimate weapon. They were the peak of technological development or regarded that way. And uh, people got um, carried away. It's, I, I kind of see nuclear power and technology because like they put it in like medicine and drinks and cars. Oh, yeah. Like it's kind of like 
how you see now every company has like a social media account like your serial yeah your your serial yeah, has blockchain your serial doesn't need a facebook but you know like back in the day like, like we have this really really nice thing but have we put a nuke on it yet yeah like yeah. Let, let's figure that out and um the uh the uh nuclear medicines which are a favorite for a certain value of that word because they kill people right um, <laughs> You know, in the early 1900s, those got articulated to these discussions around like what the vital life force was and electricity and then x-rays got discovered and like, oh, yeah, of course, drinking radium with thorium and daughter products is good for you. Like, why wouldn't it be? You know, in the F- Yeah. So the FDA finally started regulating that uh, in the early 30s after a guy named Evan Beyer, who was rich. Um, right. That's when we care. Uh, died in a spectacularly horrific way. And at that point they said, all right, you know, we're going to kind of nix some of this stuff. And um, there was other ways that the military used this shit. And like, so this is obviously post-World War II um, and uh, combined arms warfare has been around for, for generations um, and then got kind of reinvented as the blitzkrieg during World War II. And then the militaries had to come up with their own ways to make things even more horrific so they decided to try combined arms nuclear warfare. Oh yeah. Um, and my personal favorite, because I know I know the U.S. kind of did this with Desert Rock, but uh, yeah. is the Soviet one, and I'm I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation in Totskoy. Totskoy, yeah, uh, I think it was. I, I looked at the name, but yeah, something like that. Yeah, and uh, you know the the Soviets insisted that all they were all wearing protective suits and respirators, and no nothing bad happened. Um, like, you know, the operation involved something like 40,000 people. Yep. And um, they said that only about 3,000 soldiers would march through the actual blast site. So they would yeah. they, they detonated a 40 kiloton bomb, which I'm assuming that is a decent sized bomb for 1954. Yeah, it was, you know, th- um, Hiroshima was 15 kilotons about uh, Nagasaki was 20 kilotons about um, in 1954. You were starting to move toward or you were starting to get. Uh, staged thermonuclears so it was right on that cusp of like becoming small but 40 kilotons is a big fucking bomb under any circumstances right and and like the people in charge of this thing uh they weren't dumb like the guy that was in charge of the entire operation was georgie zhukov so yeah yeah. uh so three thousand people marched right through the blast zone only i think like a couple hours after the bomb went off um, like yep. the, the soldiers, there's uh, there's reported. I don't know if any of them are still alive. I couldn't find any currently surviving soldier. I'm sure they're all long dead from cancer. But uh, they reported walking over the the glass that had been turned to sand, or oh, yeah. the sand that had been turned to glass. Uh, but you know, the Soviets like nothing bad happened. They all had protective clothing that worked flawlessly. Um, you know, I have a hard time believing that. Um, yeah. Be- uh, yeah, right, and that at all. You know, they they all. I mean, you have issues getting people to wear their dosimeters on a good day. Right, uh, but this is like yeah. 1950s and, Soviet Union, so everything's much worse yep. and more depressing. Um, yeah, and, and how much did they, they know about like the the implications on the human body? I mean, I'm sure they learned a lot from going to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and looking at the survivors. But uh, yeah, um, so it's it's interesting actually because as flawed as the data is, right? Because it's really difficult to um, reconstruct dosages and such. It's also one of the few. Um, you know, the few situations where like people got, you know, you had a large population that was exposed to radiation and that you could study them. And the U S put a lot of effort and money into it. Um, 
by the 19, early 1950s, uh, you know, I would say that they certainly weren't as um, aware or concerned about like some of the issues with lower dosages and the chronic exposures and such. But they were certainly at the point where, like, you know, the United States, for instance, um, chose not to regulate radon levels in uranium mining. Um, and we should have, and we knew that we should have because uh, occupational-related uh, cancers from uranium mining are, like, one of the oldest known to medicine. And in 1952, the United States was sending around public health, um, National Health Service people to start monitoring uranium mine workers because we knew it was going to happen. Um, and they were allowed access to the workers in part after they gave, they told the uh, mine owners and operators, like, hey, look, we won't tell them what we're doing and why we're doing it. And the AEC chose not to regulate uh, those levels because, you know, they were worried about uranium supply. Um, and this is this is in the United States in the 50s. Yeah. So, yeah. And I can imagine the Soviets the, are a few years behind on that. Yeah. I'm, you know, in the Soviet Union. I mean, so as, as fucked up as shit as the U.S. did, the Soviet Union was always like, hold my beer. Yeah, um, and they and they never even even with normal weapons procurement, they never had the protection of their soldiers. Like, uh, like their the protective measures for their soldiers were never at the forefront of their mind. Um, and this has kind of shown that these guys were, and they, you know, they said that they all volunteered and everybody's fine. Oh, yeah. But they kind of uh, played their hand when they said, like, "Oh yeah, but um, we'll pay you three months' salary right oh, yeah. up front." So like, we know you're gonna die. So uh, here, have a bonus. Um, the, uh, yeah. And you know, that stuff is really hard again because it's probabilistic and it's stochastic processes, um, and how you get the dosage and whether or not like you inhale particles that stay with you for forever. And, you know, it's really difficult. Um, especially if you don't, ha uh, start it up with, um, that sort of monitoring in mind to track it over time. In the case of the United States with our desert rocks, Oh, uh, sorry, tangent, ADHD, what? Uh, one of my favorite parts of that favorite, again, for a certain value of that word, of that story is that uh, the Soviets burned down some of the houses in the local village from the thermal pulse from that weapon. Um, and they had to, like, provide new housing for those people. And uh, that's not good. Like, that was bad. And that, they just put people up. right back in that village, right? Uh, some, uh, so... You know, again, the Soviets, uh, some pe supposedly those people who did not want to return were provided new housing elsewhere. Uh, you know, who knows on that one? Yeah. Um, the United States with our desert rock exercises, uh, you were assigned to them. You could volunteer to be one of the people in like the real close trenches. And they were a mixture of like experiment and uh, what was called psychological inoculation. So on the one hand, the U.S. government wanted to see, like, how would so-called normal soldiers respond to getting nuked um, and carry out their combat duties, right? <laughs> Probably not uh, well. Yeah, right. And, and the reports after the fact all, like, everybody responded well. And the reports after the fact acknowledged, like, these were highly artificial conditions. Right? Yeah. Uh, no, probably not reflective of what was actually going to happen. Um, one, certainly the atomic test veterans have been uh, increasingly vocal um, granted, many are dying, age, and other stuff, but uh, increasingly vocal about their feelings of having been used as a guinea pig and reporting, um, you know, 
we didn't wear decimeters or high readings were ignored and did it, you know, that they weren't provided information to their own medical stuff and so on. Uh, the United States after the Trinity test, I mean, there was a family in a ranch house that, uh, yeah, they should have been evacuated and we didn't for secrecy. Um, they just left the family in there to cook. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, whatever happened to the family? uh, I'd have to go back and look. I mean, you know, again, it's probabilistic. They might've turned out to be fine. Uh, they might've all died later. Uh, and again, it depends on, um, you know, how you absorb the dose, whether you, uh, uptake it as part of food or if you inhale the particles or such. But um, I believe it's Eccles' book on the Trinity site is very explicit about like, yep, these people were dosed with a level that was high even by the standards of the time. They probably should have been evacuated. They weren't. And what what would be, uh, is breathing it in worse than eating it or does it matter at that point? It, it depends um, on the isotope and its chemical behavior in the body and the size of the particle and that stuff gets really complex. I'm mean, you know, anthropologist, right? <laughs> uh, but generally breathing in plutonium of a certain size is really bad. Uh, iodine one thirty one is oftentimes discussed in terms of ingestion because it's eaten, you know, cows eat plants, it gets excreted in the milk. People drink the milk, especially children, uh, you know, accumulates in the thyroid, but, the bioaccumulation and the environmental circulation of radionuclides was a bit of a surprise, to, you know, like many other things in the 40s and 50s to um, the U.S. government. And still sometimes remains so. So like at Hanford, uh, tumbleweeds, you know, they have deep root systems. They suck up certain radioisotopes, then they right. dry up, and then they roll off site and um, they count as an off-site radiation release at that point. So, like, you got to put up snow fencing, you know, to catch the tumbleweeds. Uh, digging animals like prairie dogs can disturb, you know, um, your burial sites and move stuff around. I mean, the Earth is a lot is in motion a lot more than we are necessarily willing to admit, and uh, stuff moves. Yeah, I mean. I don't know a lot about the Hannaford site, but it seems like the community that lives around it, regardless of what the DOE does, um, they're going to be at risk for a lot of bad things. I mean, there's like you're talking about the tumbleweeds and the prairie hogs and the prairie dogs and everything else. I mean, what what else? Like they can't make that place nuclear proof. There's no way. Oh, I mean, it's a national. You know, the big worry right now is that. Um, you'll have a plume of materials reach the river. And uh, that would be very, very bad because they built the Hanford reactors right next to the river um, for cooling water. And they also stored their waste uh, next to the river, um, which in retrospect was a really bad fucking idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Japan learned that pretty well. Uh, oh, yeah, with the tsunami and the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, in this case, it's more about... Um, you know, it's a major water source and it's an important one. And you've got hundreds of thousands of gallons of highly radioactive waste buried, although we've now removed the liquid components for the most part. Uh, you know, and it can migrate. Again, you know, those double wall steel tanks and the single wall steel tanks, like they leak. Surprise. Yeah, and they degrade over time. I mean, they're. Yep. Yeah, the, the nuclear waste might be eternal, but the metal isn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, 240,000 years quite eternal right but, uh, just close you know, enough for our older than any living thing on earth 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're now nor- a little bit north of an hour, uh, which is okay. you know our, our normal time. So in closing, what would you like? Uh, what would your message be about these weapons and uh, what their role is in humanity in the in the uh, history of human conflict? That's a big one, um, and it's contested and con- controversial. At the end of the day. Um, I would suggest that whatever you may or may not believe about what nuclear weapons have done in the past, that indefinite retention of nuclear weapons, especially large numbers that are available for use very rapidly, um, especially when that launch authority is concentrated in a single individual, as it is in the United States system, uh, you know, and then you get a Nixon or a Trump or whomever, that uh, the current path we're on is virtually inevitably going to lead to a catastrophic situation where the world as we know it will end and i would offer that these are not magical devices that sprang out of the head of zeus we built them we can take them apart and the way that we choose to do that needs to be associated with a larger rethinking of how we structure power in the world and that continuing to rely upon violence as the way of organizing International affairs is a recipe for disaster again and again and again. Thank you, Marty, uh, and soon to be hopefully Dr. Pfeiffer. Uh, oh, God, three more years. <laughs> three Please, more years. Thank uh, you. We will have you back on when you're a doctor to give us more credibility. How about that? Um, well, I, I think it'll be me who gets the credibility. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thanks again for coming on. Um, so Plug your pluggables. Uh, how can people find you on Twitter? Because I know you have a rather large following. Yeah, I, I'm at 12.6 thousand now. So I'm at, at Nuclear Anthro on Twitter. You can also go to deusexatomica.org, which is uh, like Deus Ex Machina, only Atomica, which is uh, my blog, which I need to update. Um, and my Patreon is, you know, patreon.com slash nuclear anthro. But I spend um, more time probably than is healthy on Twitter. And Same. that's also, yeah, <laughs> I mean, all of us, right? Especially these days. With, uh, people ask, why do you follow Trump? And I'm like, it might be the only warning I get. Yeah. Um, He'll probably tweet about it before anything happens. Yeah. Right. Uh, you'll you'll see a tweet tw- that just says, LOL, nukes go whoosh. And then you're like, wait, what? And then Seattle's on fire. So I made a, uh, you can make fake Trump tweets. And I made one of an alphanumeric sequence. And um, I had to label it as a joke. I had to delete and relabel it as a joke because people were like, I just checked. What is that? You know, <laughs> uh, oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. Well, yeah, but certainly on Twitter, you know, I, I try and make a real effort to share my research findings. I have several freedom of information acts that have come through uh, and on my blog and my Twitter are generally where I try and make that available because um, I think that it's important for the public. Uh, interested in otherwise to be able to access information about this topic. And it's not beyond the grasp of lay people or the mass public. And, you know, history shows that when mass movements are involved on nuclear weapons issues, it shapes the behavior of governments. And during the Cold War, it certainly helped shape that behavior in a way that helped avoid, you know, a large scale nuclear war. So, yeah, I think we can all agree um, a, a mass human genocide is something that none of us want. Um, and yeah. the, the argument for these weapons, it seems like they just don't make sense. Um, we need, we need this weapon to destroy the world for self-defense. Yeah. Um, right. But 
yeah thanks for coming on uh thank you for having me i really yeah, enjoyed it anytime um if you ever want to talk about nuclear history i have no idea what you're talking about but i would love to have you on oh, <laughs> um so you can follow the podcast on twitter at lines underscore by you can follow me joe at jcast 99 and uh, our podcast will always be free um but if you think it's worth a dollar you can throw it to us on patreon and we will actually soon have uh bonus content coming out so i look forward Woo-hoo. to that yeah products and goods and stuff uh so until next time thank you and have a good one Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible, and as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.